This is our Lent series, and this Lent season is, is the six weeks from, from Ash Wednesday all the way up to Good Friday, our celebration of Easter, and we want you to walk through this series with us. It's called From Here to There, and it's, if nothing else, about the move that Jesus and the disciples make when they begin to make their way to Jerusalem, from North Galilee all the way down through the countryside. They have to go around Samaria because even the Samaritans are not welcoming Jesus at this time. Things are intensifying in his ministry, and Jesus knows, his disciples know, that the closer they get to Jerusalem, the the more conflict they're going to have, the the more difficulty there will be. And so each gospel tells us this geographical journey, but it makes me think about the journeys that you're all on, about where God's taking you. We said, for two weeks now, we've said that God's always moving us somewhere. Sometimes it's geographically, you've moved a bunch of times, one of us at least 30 times, a few of us a few less than that, but God moves us geographically. He also moves us spiritually. He moves our values. He moves our desires. He moves us from one place to another, and it made me wonder this week about some of you, where is God moving you lately? What is he moving you from, and what is he moving you to? And as he moves you in these places, you can feel it in yourself, this, this resistance that, yeah, I don't want to go there. I, I think I know where God's moving me. I mean, how many times have you heard from people who have said, you know what, you never say never to God? Usually that's because something rises up in us and we say, you know what, I'm never gonna, you name it. When Donna, when we were dating as teenagers, she said, I'll never marry a pastor. And so, you know, here she is. <laughs> and so all of these things that God does, I think we sense that he's taking us someplace a place of obedience or maybe a place of truth or a place of surrender. And we know that it's going to be a tough journey. The disciples know this. They're going from the north country where nobody's really concerned about Rome and nobody's concerned about the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And they know the closer they get to the city, it's going to get tough. It's going to be hard. And so In John chapter 11, Jesus says, you know, hey, we've heard that Lazarus, our friend, is sick. Lazarus and Mary and Martha, they live just outside of Jerusalem. And Jesus says, we're going to go see him. And they get a little skittish. They're like, are you sure we want to go there? I mean, last time we were there, they tried to kill you. And they had this discussion. You can sense that they feel like, well, I mean, you can go if you want, but not me. And this is what we do with God. We say, I mean, if that's where you're going, you know, I'll catch you on the flip side. See you later but not me. I don't want to go there. I don't want to have the conversation that you want me to have, God. I don't want to trust you in this new and unique way. I don't want to go these places because they're hard and they make me think about my own heart and my life and make decisions that maybe ultimately aren't best for what I want. But God always takes us to these places. And when he does, it is for his love for us. That's why he does it. It's because he wants us to experience freedom in a new way. It doesn't feel best for us because we have some designs on our life, but it is, in fact, because of his love and his compassion and his mercy that he takes us these places. And so this journey that we're on from here to there, we got a bunch of from here to there through the series. This journey that we're on through John chapter 11 is first from, from life to death. Not a fun one, right? Nobody says, you know, sign me up. This is, this is a tough place to go. But then it also yet takes us, even in this chapter, from death to life. 
And in this space, not only is Jesus moving geographically closer to his death, but he's also taking his friends, his disciples, and his other friends that are down in Bethany, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, on this same journey, is because he knows that we all have this most basic built-in fear that is always operating, this fear is. It's always present, it's always there. Sometimes it's right here in front of us because of what's happening in our life, but sometimes we've been able to kind of shove it down, maybe live in denial or, or just ignore it for a while because of the joy of life or the food we're eating or the company we keep. And this fear is always present. Sometimes it's background, sometimes it's center stage. When the author of Hebrews a New Testament book, when the author of Hebrews begins to describe the, the reasons why Jesus came and, and what our reconciliation to God looks like, the author uses this phrase, which I think is profound and it's powerful. And this is what the phrase says, that Jesus came to free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. In fact, let's say that together. Jesus came, why? To free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. This, this slavery that we're in comes about because of our fear of death. And it creates a, a bondage of sorts. We don't even know that it's there, but we're held prisoner by it. And most of us fully acknowledge that our time on earth here is temporary, that our life is going to come to an end. We know this, we understand it, we acknowledge it as a fact. But this fear affects the way we live, the way we relate, it affects how we make choices, it affects our values, it affects who we engage with, what kind of work we do. Modern psychology, in fact, all that is written and all that we understand about modern psychology, how the mind works and our feelings, our emotions, our will, is based on this simple idea that we are in bondage or in slavery to our fear of death. This is, this is where all of it emanates from, all of it. And most all broad thinkers in the psychology world, they would say that this, this fear, this, this existential dread that we carry with us creates innumerable dysfunctions in the way that we relate to each other. And it shows up in, a, in a, a myriad of ways. And it's difficult at times to connect the dots, but if you do the reading and the research, and they'll say this, that your anxiety, your envy with each other, your fear of failure, all of these things, anger, rage, aggression, paranoia, the competition that you engage in, the, the politics that you engage in in the office, the family breakdown that occurs when a parent dies and everybody's fighting over the inheritance. All of these things occur essentially because there is a root behind it. It's our slavery to our fear of death. And, and these are the symptoms of that slavery. I know it's a little deep, but Jesus goes on this journey with the disciples and with us so that we'll understand this. And he, he wants to undo some of this in our life. And so you can see what I mean, that even though the journeys that we're on, even though we are reluctant participants very often, Jesus wants us to find freedom. That's what he wants. He wants you to find freedom from these things, and, and the list is endless, the symptoms that come from it. They come because 
Well, we approach people with an air of suspicion because we believe that, you know, we got to get ours and take care of us and this is all our fear of death. Or sometimes we approach people with a sense of, oh, we know that they can give us something that is meaningful to us, like a position in a company or future financial gain or social credibility. And so we either approach people in this suspicious mode or in you are a means to my end. We use people. One of two things happens when we operate with this fear of death. And you can see it all around you. It's a little tougher for you to see it if you have a mirror because it's much easier to spot in other people than it is to spot in us. But odds are, if you see it in somebody else, it means you have some awareness of it. And so Jesus takes us on this journey so that he can free us from that. So what would that even look like? What is Jesus trying to undo that we think? Most of us have an understanding of life and death and how it works. Even those of us that follow Jesus and ascribe to what we might call a biblical worldview. Jesus is going to undo some of that if we'll let him. And there are very few people I know, I don't even include myself among them, that understand John 11 well and then build their life around Jesus' perception, Jesus' description, how Jesus articulates how life and death work. But we're going to give it a try today and see if he can nudge us a little bit further. If you're up for it, then so am I. And God can change my heart, he can change yours too. And so Jesus is on a journey. You know, he's coming from the north, Sea of Galilee up there. He's going to make his way down to Jerusalem. The disciples are kind of fighting about it, but eventually they all go with him. But they're making their way to a place called Bethany. It's just a couple miles outside of Jerusalem. And that's where Mary and Martha and Lazarus live. And so we made it through half of chapter 11. This is the second half this week. When Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been in his grave for how long? This is a before refrigeration was invented. So just let your imagination run wild. Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem, and many of the people had come to console Mary and Martha in their loss. Now, if you know a little bit about the, the spiritual religious calendar that's happening right now, Jerusalem is starting to swell because of the, the festive, festivities and the religious festivals that are about to occur. And so they had many friends. They probably had some social standing. They probably had some relationships in the community. And many people, it wasn't very far, a couple miles, not very far at all, especially when nobody has a car, they're just walking. Jesus had traveled four days, you know, 20, 25 miles a day probably. And now they're coming to console Mary and Martha. Why? Because their brother had passed away. And the friends, they came to help. And we do this today. We help each other. We connect with one another. Somebody goes through a hard time and we cook them food and we visit them and we take care of them. Same thing happened then. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary stayed in the house. Martha said to Jesus, and I, I, love, I love her honesty. I love what she says and how plain she says it. Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. What I love about what Martha says here is we say many of the same things. We just say it in a different way. Lord, if you were paying attention to me, this wouldn't have happened. If you had answered our prayers, this wouldn't have occurred. And I know, we, we talked last week how this has a, a bit of entitlement to it. Because 
Martha, Mary, they believed that they had an in relationally with Jesus, but so do we. We have the same feelings, the same thoughts, all of these things. And, and they're not out of place. They're not out of order for us to feel these things because God wants to give us good things because he has the power and the ability to fix these problems that we have, whether it's a health issue or a financial issue or reconcile a relationship that's just full of friction and trouble. Of course, God loves you and he wants what is best for you. That doesn't mean you always get it, exhibit A today. It doesn't mean that things always work out the way that we want them to, but God desperately wants to walk in relationship with us. And so if you are in a spot where you feel like God has let you down or he didn't answer your prayers, that you have good company. Some of the best friends of Jesus felt that way in the first century, and they had first century in-person access to the Son of God. And so why? Why didn't God fix it? Jesus didn't heal everybody. Jesus didn't solve every problem. Jesus didn't feed every hungry stomach. Why not? Some of our understanding about this question that we have comes from this passage. There is a a perspective we have about people who love us and how they will treat us and maybe better said should treat us. And God wants to speak into that. He wants to address some of that. Because we can feel, we can build a wall up with God and God doesn't want that wall there. And so she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She's honest about it. And some of you have quit being honest with God because you say that and you feel like it doesn't get past the ceiling. But I love how Jesus lets her express this. He doesn't correct her. He doesn't call her out. He's gonna help her change her mind and her heart about some things, but it's not gonna be about that. He gets her disappointment And God gets yours too. I promise he does. But even now she says, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. And so Jesus looks at her again. They're in this conversation. Remember, they're not at the home yet. She came out to meet him on the road. And so it's it's maybe a few people are there. Disciples are obviously there. But it's mostly a conversation between Jesus and Martha. So Jesus told her, your brother will what? Your brother will rise again. Now, when Jesus says this to her, she's thinking, yeah, I, yeah, I, I know that. You, you told me something I already know. I know that that's going to happen. And the reason she knows that is because her and her fellow Jewish believers, they have a belief in the resurrection. There were some Jews that didn't believe in a resurrection, but their uh, particular sect of Judaism had a deeply held belief that there would be a resurrection one day. And so she says, yeah, I, I know. He will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. She believes in the same future that you believe in. If you grew up in most of the evangelical churches, have a orthodox faith according to most things that we understand about scripture. I don't know anybody that has a, uh, at least a cursory even, following of Jesus that believes that everything ends when we die. I don't know anybody that believes that. I know some people do believe that, but not folks that at least embrace, embrace faith or follow Jesus in some way. Most of us believe that there's, there's something more that we don't 
can't touch or see or feel right now, that, that there is another thing. What is that thing? And what does it look like? I don't know. Maybe you know. Somebody knows. Most people don't know. Maybe you know somebody that's been there and came back to tell us about it. And even those people don't agree on what it's about and what it looks like. So I, I don't know. But I know there's more, we would say. This is what we would say, our beliefs, that there's a, a heaven, a hereafter, a um, an eternity that we get to experience with God. And that's what she believes. She believes what you believe. And that we believe these things is exactly why Jesus is going to Bethany. It's exactly why Jesus said, I'm going to wait. I'm going to go slow. I'm going to let Lazarus die. This is why Jesus did this. Because he wants to take what we think about some of these things and turn them upside down a bit. And so he explains a bit further. She says, yeah, I already know this. And um, which is never a great thing to say to Jesus, right? Because he's going to say it again a different way. And so Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Let's say that verse together, okay? You ready with me? The whole thing. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. This is where the language translation between Greek and English comes up a bit short. And it's important to grasp. And the tools that I use and maybe that some of you use to to learn and understand these languages, they're, they're pretty accessible. You don't have to be a language scholar to understand them. They're accessible to you and me and anybody that has access to the internet. There are three Greek words for the word life. In our language, we say life, but there are three Greek words that describe a different kind of life. Each of them has a different meaning. The first is bios. And this word, these are all, of course, English alliterations um, of the Greek word. The first is bios. It's not in scripture very much, only a few times. Um, Jesus uses it a couple times to talk about as he's describing a parable or some other teaching, but it's not used very much. But it means and refers to our biological life, your heart pumping, blood moving through your veins, your your breathing physically. It is biology, it is biological life. This means that you are, as the medical doctor would say, you are in fact what? Alive, you are alive. I can think most of you are. I'm not real sure, but I think probably. And so that's bios. That's the Greek word. That's the Greek word. Okay, that is not the word Jesus used here, and it's used very little in Scripture. The next is this word psyche, and it's that's a little. We took a, a little bit of liberty with the English alliteration. Usually, it's a U in the middle, but it's pronounced very similarly. Psyche. This has to do with the the mind, in the will, and the emotions, as you might imagine. Uh, it's where we get our words regarding psychology or psychological. This is, um, in many ways, has everything to do with, with your emotions, what you think and what you feel. Most of the time in Scripture, when this Greek word is used, it is translated soul. But not always. But mostly it has to do with what you think, what you want, and what you feel. So when Jesus says, come to me, all you who are burdened, And I will give you rest for your, what? Your soul. That's the word, psyche. When Jesus says, do not be anxious for your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, what you will wear, that's the word. You feel anxiety, do not be anxious for your life. Life, soul, life, mostly translated soul. 
these are not the words that Jesus used most when he's describing life. This can also refer to physical breath that we take in and that we breathe out. The word Jesus uses is this third word that has to do with life, that is translated life. In fact, it's translated life in almost every instance, instance in our New Testament, and it's zoe. That's how you say that, zoe. Say it with me, zoe. That's it. This is a different kind of life. This is life that has been made in the image of God. This is life that is eternal that does not have an end. This is the very breath of God that is in a life. When God creates and he breathes into a life form, it is the spiritual depth of life that exists. It is God in us. God with us and God as a part of us. You bear his image You have your being in him. As Paul said in Acts 17, in him we live and we move and we have our being. That is Zoe life. If you have life at all, you have this Zoe life. It is that of God that allows us to even be alive. It's true. We all have, at least here in this room, maybe watching online, Bios Life, most of us have a psyche life. Some are a little more psycho, but that's, that's another sermon. Um, we all have that. But then this Zoe life, this Zoe life is the life that God sustains, inhabits, and gives. And that is the word that Jesus uses when he uses the word life most all the time. Not exclusively, but it is the word that he uses in this passage. He uses it there, resurrection and the life, and anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. That's the word he uses. This understanding of life is important because when most of us describe life or we think about life, we're thinking about bios life, aren't we? How are they doing? Did they make it? You know, is this so-and-so past? We're describing bios life. That's what we're describing. When we're wondering somebody who has dealt with a a severe trauma or a difficulty in their life and they have experienced either anxiety or depression and we say, how are they doing? What are we asking about? We're asking about their psyche life, their, their minds and their emotion and their will. When Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life, anyone who believes in me will live even after dying, Jesus is describing and even talking about something different than most of us think when we use the word alive or life or living. And that's important. It's so important to understand that our perspective is different. Jesus is talking about a different thing. And he and Martha are missing each other like this. And what's about to happen is Jesus is about to bring Martha up to his understanding of what life is. And so then Jesus has the utter audacity, the utter uh, unbelievable gall to say this to Martha. This is what he says. Right after, same set of verses. 
Everyone who lives in me, same Zoe life, and believes in me, he says this, what happens to them, say it with me in the red, will Say it again. And then he says, do you believe this, Martha? Do you believe this? When Jesus asks this question, where is Lazarus? Where is he? He's in a tomb. Come on. He's in a tomb. How... How can Jesus ask Martha this question? Because you know what she's thinking. May I hear you, but Lazarus is dead. I hear what you're saying, but Lazarus is dead. And she might be thinking this. Maybe I don't understand life and death. Maybe what I think is death is really just moving day. And if that's true, what does that mean for now? So then, she says, yes, Lord, I've always believed you are the Messiah. And of course, that's not what he said exactly. But she said, I believed you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come in into the world from God. And so it's possible because she's still, they're still doing this. Do you see it? Do you feel it? It's possible for you to follow Jesus, believe in scripture, and believe most of the right things about who God is and what he does and maybe misunderstand the very nature of life and death. It's possible. In fact, It's happening right before us on the pages of Scripture. And so, in that moment, uh, Martha says, you know what, let me me go get Mary. And so she goes, I think she's tired of the conversation. Um, She's like, you know what, you didn't do what I wanted you to do. I'm kind of done with you for right now. I'm going to go get my sister. And so she does. She goes to get Mary, and she grabs Mary out of the house, and a bunch of the mourners follow them, and they come out to see Jesus. And Mary's there, the mourners are there. And so the scene has changed a good bit. It's significantly changed uh, from a private conversation to now a very public one. Of course, the disciples are still there, but many of the friends are still there and, and with Mary, and they follow her out. They think she's going to the tomb, but she's not. She's coming to see Jesus first. And when that happens, when Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, pay attention to what happens. A deep anger welled up within him. And he was deeply troubled. This, this Greek word is a great word. It, it has to do with this consternation deep down in your gut. You know, it feels like you just ate something you shouldn't have eaten. And something's bad is about to happen to your stomach, you know. This is the word that is used there. Where have you put him, he asked. Now, the question that ought to keep you up at nights a little bit is, why was Jesus angry? Why was he angry? Who was he angry at? And where did his anger come from? Jesus sees this group of people and he sees them intensely grieving and he knows what they're grieving. Lazarus has died. It isn't the grieving that bothers him. In fact, you're gonna see in a moment, Jesus grieves along with them. Jesus is heartbroken with them. He sees it all and he weeps with them. Why is he angry? I believe his anger comes from this place 
of seeing people who misunderstand the very nature of life and death. And he knows that they've been fooled. Do you remember just a chapter before, Jesus says, he describes another verse, great verse about life and death. He says, the thief comes to, do you remember what the thief comes to do? Any words? Steal, kill, and destroy. That's so good. You guys know your scriptures. To steal, to kill, and destroy, he says. And he is looking at people who have an understanding of life and they have experienced this thievery, this death, and this destruction. And he sees it and they're grieving. And then he says in John 10, he says, but I have come that they may have what? Zoe, life. And not just a little bit, but like running over, like abundantly, he says. It's a lot of life. And he sees them, they're completely wrung out of any of that Zoe life. Because they've misunderstood. And so he's deeply troubled. Where have you put them? He says, they told him, Lord, come and see. And then Jesus wept. In most translations, it's the shortest verse in all the Bible. It's two words in case you need a trivia answer. So they go and make their way to the tomb. And Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb. A cave with a stone rolled across his entrance. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told him. And I love what, what Martha says next. She's such a, she tends to the details, right? So you know the scripture. If you know it, she says this. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, he has been dead for four days. What does she say? Say it with me. The smell will be terrible. So she still doesn't get it, right? They're still missing each other, of course. The King James Version is the best, of course, because it says, he stinketh. It's good. (laughs) I don't know why stuff is funnier in the King James. It just is. He stinketh. The smell will be terrible. And so then Jesus looks around and he begins to pray. The crowd is around the tomb. The stone has been rolled away. I don't know, it's wafting their way, I guess. I don't know. Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me. But I said it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here so that they will believe that you sent me. And I think even maybe further than that, so that they will begin to change their understanding of life and death. And so then Jesus shouted, say it with me. You ready? Say it with me. Ready? Lazarus, come out. He shouted it. You kind of... You didn't really put much behind it. But I have a feeling that when Jesus said this, he didn't shout it for them. He said it loudly because Lazarus is is deep in the tomb and he wants Lazarus to hear him. I can't even begin to comprehend the tension of this moment. Because up to this point in time, literally minutes before, Martha is absolutely convinced her brother is dead and going to stay dead. And everyone else believes this as well. And when Jesus says this, there would be this sense of the people that have seen Jesus heal that there is a bit of hope that's left. That maybe, is it possible? And the anticipation would have been so thick and so palpable in this moment, the emotion. Am I gonna see my brother again? And when he says this, out Stumbling from the grave, the dead man came out, his hands and his feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth, and of course, all of their jaws are on the ground. They're just looking at him, standing there, and Jesus is like, well, goodness sakes, unwrap the man. He can't see anything. He's got his head wrapped. He's just, he's going to fall and hurt himself. 
which is ironic, right? It's a little ironic. He just came back from the dead. Jesus is right there. It would work if he did. And so this moment is the moment when Jesus is communicating to everyone present. You thought Lazarus was dead. His bios, his bios was, you know, glitching, checked out, done for now. But he wasn't dead. Lazarus never died, Jesus is saying. And if you're not sure that's what he was saying, then go back about three verses and see what he said to Martha. He said that if you believe in me, you will what? You will never die. That's what he said. Now, I don't understand it. I don't. Anybody that says they do is selling you something. I don't comprehend how it works. I don't know where you go or where you hang out or what happens between this and between that. And I, it's going to be a resurrection, the scriptures say, and it will be bodily and it will be fully complete. We will be known. We will be seen. I don't, I don't understand it. I really don't. We have some family members in our family that are dealing with the, this existential dread and, and mortality in significant ways right now. And so reading through this passage and pondering it has made me think deeply about their experience and what they are hoping for and what we all are hoping for for them. And it's made me question what I think and believe regarding my faith, not in a doubtful way. I wonder if I haven't believed enough. I wonder if I haven't trusted enough. And I wonder when Jesus says, if you believe in me, you will never die if we understand what that really means. And if we were to wrap our heads around it and we're on this journey from death to life, then I wonder if we fully put our weight down on that belief, what Jesus says in John chapter 11. I wonder what kinds of things would begin to fade away from our, our issues, our fears, our anxieties, our relational dysfunction. I wonder what kind of freedom God is calling us to if we're willing to move from death to life, the way he took Martha and Mary and Lazarus too. I wonder. I wonder what kind of peace we would have. I wonder if we would really trust God for our future. And if we could trust him for our eternity, then surely we could trust him for Tuesday, right? Earlier in the Gospels, Jesus is having dinner at Mary and Martha's house. And Martha's in the kitchen doing all her stuff, and Mary sees that Jesus is there and just wants to spend time with him. You know the story. And if you don't, it's beautiful. And Martha's pretty upset that Mary wasn't helping. And she comes and makes a complaint. And, you know, Master, why, why has she just been sitting at your feet? And this is... This is what Jesus says to Martha, and I think it kind of connects to this whole passage and is sort of part one, and John 11 is part two. And this is what he says, and probably this is the thing that many of you need to hear today. He says this to, to Martha. Martha, you are worrying about many things, but there's only one thing that is necessary. And I wonder what you're worried about today. I wonder what you're concerned about. It, it eventually can be connected by some skilled psychology to your existential dread, I promise. 
And that existential dread is rooted in not believing the words of John chapter 11, that if you believe in me, you will never die. And if that's true, then what happens next? Well, I don't know all the answers, but I know that I can trust a good God who loves me and will hold me in his hands and take care of me, and so can you. We're gonna sing about this King Jesus, but we're gonna pray first. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we surrender to you. We recognize that we don't even begin to understand the depth of what Jesus is communicating in this passage. But we do know this, that our fears sometimes lock us up and leave us in places of anxiety, of dread, of selfishness. And we want desperately to open our hands to you and say that we trust you. Even Mary and Martha, Lord, who walked with your son Jesus, found themselves in a place of believing their theology, but not believing in the person of Jesus and what he was about to do. And so we know that you are gracious and that you forgive us of those times of doubt and disbelief as well. So today we bring all of the things that we are worried about that create anxiety in us and lay them at your feet. And we do that because we want to trust you. Even in places where we have shown that we will not trust you. We desire to lay it at your feet because we believe that you love us and that your mercy and grace, they are sufficient for us. And so, Lord, we declare truth in these lyrics and we pray that this this truth would be the foundation we lean on. For it is only you, Lord, and only your love that will guide us and lead us.